uh, New Testament lesson comes to us this morning from 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy. We're going to uh, read from chapter 2. You can find this on page 995 of your Pew Bible. And we'll pick up in verse 8. And one of the things we'll see here, what's really the focus, is Paul's faithful saying that he quotes here. You'll see in the Pew Bible, and probably the Bible that you brought, this is indented. Most believe that this is something that Paul is quoting. So we'll begin with verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And our catechism lesson comes to us today uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17. And it is a single question. Dear Christian, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Amen. We have, at least some of us, divided attention. I know some of you are far too sanctified for this to happen, but it's happened to me before. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're uh, sitting and you're watching TV, maybe you're watching a movie or a show, and you're looking at your phone at the same time. Now, that's never happened to any of us before. Um, And when you do this, you drift back and forth. You're paying attention to one, and then you're paying attention to the other. At one point, the TV gets really interesting, and you stop looking at your phone, and then it gets boring again, and you drift to the next thing. But you can't quite focus on both. No matter what you do, your attention span can't handle both things at the same time as much as it tries. Well, our hearts, the reason I bring this up, are not that different. We can't love too many things. Um, A few years ago, we studied a book together um, in our Wednesday study, You Are What You Love, and it was challenging and stimulating, and we didn't always agree with what he wrote. But the point is that we can only love so many things, and it's what we love that shapes us. In that book, he quoted uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the gentleman who wrote The Little Prince, if you're unfamiliar, and he wrote something to the effect of, this is me quoting from memory, if you want to build ships, teach men to long for the sea. Teach them to love sailing. You want ships to be built? Create a longing for something. Create a love for something. The point being that our loves and our longings shape our actions deeply. 
And one of the things we're seeing today and our Lord's Day is that Christ's resurrection benefits us um, by raising us to a new life. By raising us to a new life and giving us, as I would say, a new affection. Perhaps you're familiar with uh, Thomas Chalmers' The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a very stimulating read. It's about, I found an edition that was about 11 pages, just a PDF. If you have time this afternoon, I recommend it. It's a little dense, but it's, it's beneficial. One of the things he talks about is how in regeneration, we love something new. And to change, we need to love something new. By nature, we love ourselves. We're radically self-centered and self-interested. This is, of course, an Augustinian point. This is not something that is unique to us as Reformed people. The heart always has loves. He talks about how painful it is to not have something to set your affections on. He compares it to hunger. It's as though you don't have food if your heart doesn't have something to love. And those loves, of course, shape the person. But the Augustinian insight that we are what we love is important. We are worked in on ourselves. The things we love derive from that love of self in the natural man. He writes, Chalmers, the heart must have something to cling to, and never by its own voluntary consent will it denude itself of its attachments, that there shall not be one remaining object that can draw or solicit it. He talks about in decadent cultures where there are too many loves, divided attentions, that ennui and despair set in. It's not because we have no loves, but because we can't settle on one. But the Spirit of Christ makes us alive. It gives us a new object of affection. It's expulsive in that it pushes out and dethrones what's already there, ourselves. It's the expulsive power of that new affection. And so we're going to look in order at these three things from the catechism. But in all of that, we need to remember that being raised to a new life is also being given a new object of affection. We will look at these, uh, his resurrection overcoming death, that his power raises us to a new life, and third, that his resurrection is a pledge. And there is a lot of overlap. Our catechism author recognizes this between Christ's death and his resurrection and what they do. And so I'm going to try not to repeat myself too much from last week, but there will be natural connections. But to begin, what we start with is that Christ has triumphed over sin and its effect, death. Paul writes in Colossians 2 of Christ nailing the record of debt to the cross. He writes about him triumphing over the powers, including death. We remember Paul from Romans that the wages of sin is death. And our catechism reminds us that through the death of death and the death of Christ, he has triumphed over sin, over our death. Christ's resurrection means not only that we are united in his death, that we don't fear death, but also in this new life. These things are for us. It was Christ's sinlessness 
that allowed him to triumph over death. Death had no power over him. These things are intimately connected. You can think of Peter's Pentecost sermon, right? God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. That comes from Psalm 16, right? You will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Peter preaches this text at Pentecost. And what does he note in verse 24? God raised Christ up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And skipping down to verse 31, David foresaw in this psalm and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Death could not contain him. Peter teaches us that. Out of Psalm 16, the Messiah could not be held. He was sinless found. And he overcame death not just for himself and by his own power, but for us, so that we could share in his righteousness. If sin and death are connected and Christ pays for our sins, then he's also overcome our death. He gives us his righteousness, and death has no dominion. And we should pause just for a moment to remember that Christ did rise from the dead. Recently, in the light of his death, I heard an older clip from Tim Keller. And it was some of the same material that he addressed in his Reason for God book, but he was defending Christianity and talking about what was plausible. And he talked about how we all know there's meaning. We all know there's good and evil. He talked about how a modern view relativizes these things. But when we believe in God, good and evil makes sense. Meaning makes sense. If we deny God and his existence, it makes no sense. We also have similar reasons to believe in the resurrection. People weren't inclined towards believing miracles more than we are today. In fact, they were more surrounded by death. They were intimately familiar with it. And we should not partake in chronological snobbery and think that we know more than they are just because we are later. But the apostles believed. Hostile witnesses seemed to admit that they could not find his body. There was a quick surge of a new religion that could not be stamped down. The resurrection of Christ is a historical event that changes everything. That's what we're confessing here. Christ was raised. Death could not hold him. It's not just plausible, it's true. It's the truth. God raised Christ from the dead. We don't cross our fingers when we come as we remember that the Catechism is explaining the Apostles' Creed, we don't cross our fingers and say, well, this is spiritual resurrection. No, this is physical. This has ramifications for you and for I, for me. We proudly believe this. We embrace miracles. This resurrection changed everything. 
Because it's in that that we receive righteousness. In that that he has overcome death and our own sin. And it's in that that he makes us alive. Raised to a new life. Peter, of course, preached that sermon that we just looked at briefly on Pentecost. And what was happening there? But that the Spirit was being poured out. Paul will say in Romans 8, this is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That's being poured out on the church and poured into the hearts of believers. And that same Spirit has worked for 2,000 years. Drawing men and women unto Christ. Using the gospel preached to perform small Resurrection miracles in the hearts of men and women who are dead in sin. And that's what we say. When we're being made alive to Christ, the Spirit is working in our hearts, regenerating, rebirthing. As we would have said growing up, I grew up in a Southern Baptist context. The Spirit is how we're born again, born from above. And so in the last 2,000 years, churches absolutely full of sinners have nevertheless faithfully proclaimed this gospel and the Spirit has used it and been poured into the hearts of believers and brought them to new life and given them a new love. What is the new object that Chalmers talks about? Well, God in Christ by the Spirit. God for us as proclaimed in the apostolic gospel. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the object. God is the object of our love, not out of fear of the law, but because we can approach him with no fear. Christ, the Father, the Spirit, they, he, together, one God, is worthy of our love. Christ in his person and work reveals God to us. He is God and man, God and man for us. He reveals God's love for us in his work, in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. He is whom we should love. He is the one who draws our affections to him. In the gospel, Christ is held out for us to adore and to follow. But in so doing, he dethrones us. We have to set aside ourselves. We have to deny ourselves. And this is what happens when the Spirit regenerates hearts through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. We hear Christ set forth in the gospel, and for the first time we set aside ourselves and we place God there. Our self is removed from the center of our life. We're no longer our own leaders. We no longer decide for ourselves. We become followers. We become those who gaze at Christ and seek to follow the path he tread. And so this new life that we are raised to is a life in which we are lovers and followers of Christ, not of ourself, even though the old man indwells to this day. It's a mighty struggle. No, it is in my life. I'm sure it is in yours. But we must look to Christ, the author and founder and finisher of our faith. One of the reasons we look to him is because his resurrection is a pledge for us, an assurance for us, a sign to us of the truth of this for us. 
I've been going through the catechism as I go through this year in the original German as best I can. My German's iffy. But it's brought out some insight. One of the things here is this word pledge can mean deposit, like a down payment in German. It reminds me of the Spirit being called the first installment of the new creation. In this sense, the Catechism is comparing Christ's resurrection, that new life, to that outpouring of the Spirit in the new creation. It's an assurance for us that this is real. This is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. This is exactly what he does. If Christ is raised from the dead, then the dead are raised. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, Christ was not even raised. These things go together. And so we have our text from this morning, Paul's faithful saying, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul is reminding us, like he does in Romans 6, which we quoted extensively last week, if you're buried with Christ in baptism, you are also raised to this new life. These things are true. That's what Paul's commending again to Timothy. These things are true. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Of all the miracles in the scriptures, it's this resurrection around which our faith revolves. Not that others are untrue or unimportant, but this is the central mystery. Christ's resurrection changes the very nature of what's possible. You can think back to Jesus' own day. Jews believed, some Jews, not all, believed that there could be a resurrection at the end of time. But the apostles saw the resurrected Savior. And it changed everything. It changed what they thought about the scriptures entirely. It changed how they were willing to live their lives and how far they were willing to follow Christ. Because the resurrection of the dead was no longer a theoretical debate between Sadducees and Pharisees. It was breaking into their lives. A resurrected Christ means they can be resurrected. They will be resurrected. Paul recognizes that again and again in his writing. And it means that for us as well. It means we can experience this miracle of a new life too. That is the miracle of conversion. It's not just that Christ is raised that's miraculous. It's that he changes sinners. Our God is powerful enough to raise the dead in Christ. He is powerful enough to change the hardest of hearts. Brothers and sisters, I know that many of you probably continue and have for years to pray for friends, family. And it seems sometimes that it's hopeless, doesn't it? Years and years of prayer. God raises the dead. He raises our friends, our family, our parents, our children, those we pray for. So I exhort you this morning, continue in prayer. Continue. God is faithful. 
continue, God raises the dead. There are no lost causes. There are no hearts that are too hard. There's no family beyond reach, no friends who can't be changed by the miracle of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel by the Spirit, hearts are softened, even the hardest hearts. We don't know the secret things of the Lord. Those are still mysterious. But we know God delights to hear our prayers. We know God is faithful, and we know he works miracles. We know God will continue to draw men and women unto himself. He will continue to preserve his church. The Belgic Confession reminds us that the church has always existed from the beginning of the world. It will last until the end. As appears from the fact, Christ is eternal king who cannot be without subjects. God will continue to work miracles throughout history, from the beginning to the end, drawing men and women to Christ. He preserves his kingdom. He is the perfect king. He defeated death. He gives us his righteousness. Persecution, the sword, death can't separate his people from his love, his care, his kingdom, from assurance, from this resurrection. We can trust God to preserve a people for himself, to preserve us, to draw friends and family to him, to change hearts. And so how does Christ's resurrection benefit us, brothers and sisters? It changes everything. It changes the very nature of how we see reality. It changes how we view death. It changes how we view our own lives. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view our futures our friends and family. The resurrection benefits us in many, many ways. But it reminds us that God defeated death for us. It reminds us that we can trust him, that he loves us, that nothing can separate us from him. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, we are eternally grateful for the resurrection of your Son by the Spirit. We are thankful that you raised him to new life, that he ascended to your right hand, that he poured out the Spirit upon his church. Father, we are eternally grateful for the work of your gospel, the work of your Spirit through the gospel, through ordinary words to change hearts to change sinners. Lord, we ask that you would put to death the old man in us, that we would look to Christ, that our love for Christ would expunge ourselves from the throne, that it would remove us from the throne of our hearts. We pray that we would be more selfless and less selfish in the days to come. We pray that by looking to Christ, that that would happen as we are changed and raised to a new life in this life. We are thankful that your spirit poured out means that you perform miracles, that our friends and family and loved ones can hear the gospel and come to you. There is no heart that is too hard. We ask for your comfort We ask for strength as we continue to pray. Pray.
for our loved ones. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would grow trust in us, that we would trust your counsel, your plan. And we pray that you would be with us and comfort us by this resurrection. It's in your Son's name and by the Spirit we pray all these things. Amen.